Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Do not murder. Exodus, chapter 20, verse 13, Contemporary English Version. Hello, and welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're grateful that you're able to join us for another episode of Anchored by Truth as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. With us today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. So far in this series, we have covered the first five commandments. Today, we are going to discuss the sixth commandment, which we heard in our opening scripture. R.D., what are some of the big takeaways from our discussions on the first five commandments? Well, I would also like to welcome everyone to this episode of Anchored by Truth. Certainly one of the biggest takeaways that we've seen in our look at the first five commandments out of the Tim is that the commandments were given to Moses, the Hebrews, who were leaving Egypt, and to us, frankly, for our benefit. The commandments were given to people for our benefit. They were not given for the benefit of God. God did not, and God does not need the commandments to improve his existence. But we do. The commandments tell us how to have a better relationship with God and better relationships with other people. And so one of the big ideas that we have discussed consistently is that the commandments were given to Moses, to the Hebrews, and to us for our benefit. And another big idea that we've been talking about is that all of the Ten Commandments can be viewed as having two dimensions. For instance, the Third Commandment says, Do not misuse my name. I am the Lord your God, and I will punish anyone who misuses my name. That's from the contemporary English version. So the third commandment, like seven of the other commandments, started as do not. But we can also see that the commandment instructs us to revere and respect the name of God, that we should use God's name properly. All of the commandments that tell us to not do something can be viewed as telling us to do the opposite. Similarly, the fourth and fifth commandments tell us to do something. The fourth commandment tells us to honor the Sabbath day, and the fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and mother. So, we can see that the fifth commandment also means do not disrespect or dishonor our parents. Right. So, understanding that all the commandments have affirmative and prohibitive aspects is another one of the big takeaways from our first several episodes of this series. And a third takeaway is that the sequence of the commandments as they are given to us in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, that sequence points us back to the overall story of the Bible. The first three commandments point to God's personhood, and God was, of course, present before he ever began any creation activity that produced the heavens and the earth. Now, the fourth and the fifth commandments point to that creative activity. The fourth commandment defines the human week. So the fourth commandment addresses the period of God's creative activity. The fifth commandment points us to the 
product of God's creative activity. Because God only created two people directly, Adam and Eve. God created both Adam and Eve, but all other people, including everyone who's alive on the earth today, are descendants of our original parents. Now, we're supposed to honor our parents, which is the fifth commandment, because God created our first parents in his image. And then God delegated a portion of his authority over creation to our original parents. So the final five commandments point to the sad part of the story, because the final five commandments remind us of the fall, because without the fall, none of the final five commandments would be necessary. The first five commandments would have been completely applicable even if Adam and Eve had never eaten of the forbidden fruit. But the final five commandments are only necessary because of the fall, the rebellion. But the final five commandments also remind us that as soon as the fall occurred, God began a plan of redemption, and part of that plan of redemption is the restraint of sin through God's laws. So that's a brief summary of some of what we've discussed in our first several episodes of this series. Anyone who missed an episode can find it on their favorite podcast app, or they can go to our website, crystalcbooks.com, and listen anytime. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com. Today, we move on to the Sixth Commandment, which, as we've heard in the Contemporary English Version, is only three words. Do not murder. This commandment seems so obvious, we might wonder why God felt it was necessary to include it. Isn't it self-evident that we should never commit murder? Well, we might think that. But the sad history of humanity demonstrates that the Sixth Commandment is very much necessary because, unfortunately, the entire history of man, just about from the beginning, shows us that murder was part of the sin that was embedded in man's heart because of the fall. So, God made the Sixth Commandment the first out of the list of prohibited behaviors because murder has been a part of our world since the beginning. Remember, we have the first murder in the Bible recorded in chapter 4 of Genesis, and Genesis, of course, is the first book of the Bible. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy, and things haven't improved all that much since then. And one other note that we should make about that first murder. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the Hebrews who were fleeing slavery and captivity in Egypt, He gave those Ten Commandments about 1,500 years before Christ was born, and that was roughly 3,000 years after the original creation. Well, during that 3,000-year period, murder was still not acceptable, even though God had not given expressly a commandment in the sense of it being recorded in Scripture, murder was still a prohibited activity right from the beginning. The prohibition against murder existed right at the start of man's existence. It did not just come into being when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And Cain knew that murder was wrong. Genesis chapter 4 verses 8 through 13 say in part, quote, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. 
you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Cain's behavior clearly demonstrates he knew that murdering Abel was wrong. Yes, Cain tricked Abel into going into a deserted place because he knew he was planning on murdering him. And when God confronted Cain, Cain became evasive and he lied. And even though Cain complained that his punishment was severe, Cain did not complain that his punishment was unjust. Cain knew that he deserved to be punished for what he had done to his brother. Well, if Cain had not known that murder was wrong, Cain would not have cared whether anybody saw him do it. And Cain wouldn't have lied about it. But Cain did. Cain knew murder was wrong, which meant that the prohibition against murder existed right from the beginning of humanity, and either Adam or God himself had instructed Cain and probably everyone else about that prohibition. And sadly, We have plenty of other examples in other places in Genesis where people displayed a clear awareness of the prohibition against murder. When Joseph's brothers planned to murder him, they planned to do it in a remote location, and they hid their plans. And Joseph's older brother, Reuben, actually tried to save him. Reuben told the rest of his brothers, quote, Let's not take his life, unquote. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, unquote. Reuben knew murdering Joseph was wrong. All the brothers did. So the prohibition against murder did not start when the commandment was given. God was simply formally codifying an existing and well-understood ethical standard. And that's an important observation. Somebody might ask why God gave Moses a commandment for a behavioral obligation that had been in existence for 3,000 years. Well, certainly part of that answer to that question is that the Israelites, after they left Egypt, were entering a new period of their national history. You know, when Jacob and his family had gone into Egypt, there was a group of them of about 80 people. But a little over 400 years later, there was a nation of 2 million. And God was relocating that nation, his nation, to their permanent homeland. This was a new chapter in the saga of redemption. God's people were going to have their own land, their own territory. And therefore, they needed a set of civic and ethical standards by which to govern themselves. And through the Ten Commandments and the balance of the Mosaic and Levitical codes, God was providing his people the standards by which he expected them to live. Up until the Exodus, the Hebrews had lived in Egypt, and so were living under the Egyptian civic laws. But now they were out of Egypt. They certainly couldn't adopt any of the legal or civic codes of the Canaanites they were displacing. Those legal and moral codes contained things that were repugnant. Child sacrifice was acceptable in those cultures. Child sacrifice was certainly not acceptable to God. God wanted to be sure his people operated by a set of civic laws that reflected his holy standards, not those of the people they were displacing. The whole reason God told the Hebrews to displace the people who were occupying Palestine was because they had become so morally degenerate. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17 and 18, God told the Hebrews to completely destroy them, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God, Right. Through the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, 
God was giving his people a set of civic and religious laws that reflected his holy character. So when it came to establishing a specific requirement, God started with a foundational fact. God is the author of life. So the first commandment that God gave to restrain man's sinful impulses was to reiterate the importance of life. Now, we would say today that first commandment reflects the right to life. Wow. That's something we never think about today in all of the discussions about abortion and other cultural issues. The foundational reason all innocent human beings have a right to life is because God proclaimed that we do. And one place he proclaimed that very clearly is in the sixth commandment. Yes. So let's sharpen our focus for a moment on what the Sixth Commandment says and what it does not say. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit capital punishment, provided that capital punishment is performed by legitimate civil authorities and is in conformance with legitimate and appropriate, proportional consequences for crimes that deserve to be punished by capital punishment. Crimes like murder or rape. And the Sixth Commandment does not prevent Christians from serving in the armed forces where those armed forces are being used to defend their nation, their land, against foreign aggression. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit someone from using deadly force to protect their family or themselves or their property from criminal assault or theft. The Sixth Commandment is concerned about the unwarranted, unjustified taking of innocent human life. And a somewhat trickier extension of the Sixth Commandment is that it does not prohibit a doctor from making triage decisions where the doctor may have to save one life while others go untreated. The doctor that saves one patient while they are unable to save others has not violated the Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit Christians from issuing instructions in living wills or signing what are sometimes termed DNRs, which means do not resuscitate orders. Christians are allowed to refuse extraordinary medical measures that someone may deem necessary to prolong their life if that is their choice to do so. But this is completely different from the idea of so-called assisted suicide that has become popular in some countries. Suicide is self-murder, and that's barred by the Sixth Commandment. So assisting someone to commit suicide, that's just aiding and abetting the self-murder. But where a patient refuses a drug or some other intervention that might or might not prolong their life, that's a different matter. And such decisions must always be made by the patient, without pressure from people who may have ulterior motives, even family members. And the patient must have access to the best medical information that is available from competent doctors or advisors. And we certainly are not trivializing the difficulty of any of those decisions. You have said that sometimes it takes the wisdom of Solomon to know what to do, and even then those decisions are extraordinarily taxing. The main point, though, is that the Sixth Commandment establishes a right to life, but there are times when, despite our best efforts, life can only be prolonged by intervention that is uncertain at best and will inflict suffering at worst. Correct. There is a difference between us doing things that will hasten death versus doing something that someone may think will prolong life. Hastening death is prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. 
But the fact that someone may say, I don't want to do something that may or may not extend my life, that's not covered by the Sixth Commandment. If a patient wants intervention to prolong their life, then they should certainly receive whatever it is that they desire that might be medically or therapeutically efficacious. But at any rate, it's important to understand that the Sixth Commandment establishes a basic right to life, and we understand that the correct application of that right often requires considerable wisdom and prayer. But one implication of the Sixth Commandment is very clear. Abortion is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Now, there's a lot of different positions in our culture that are related to the so-called question of abortion. And sometimes we debate the question of what do we do? Is abortion permissible when the life of the mother is in jeopardy? And there are legitimate differences of opinion on that question. So all I'm going to say about that is that I have very wise and mature Christian friends who differ on that question. So I think that the question about whether or not abortion is morally acceptable when the life of the mother is in jeopardy, I think that's a question where people have to go to God in prayer and make their own decisions. I will say this. I heard a very, call him mature, senior obstetrician testify once to a legislative body that he had been in obstetric practice for almost 40 years, and in his entire 40 years, he never saw an instance where it was medically necessary to perform an abortion to save the life of a mother. I'm not saying that that couldn't ever occur. I'm simply saying that he felt that he was qualified to answer that question from a professional perspective. Again, that's a very difficult question, and I think people People have to make their own decisions. So there are some situations in today's world where we need to seriously consider the implications of the Sixth Commandment. But what about Moses' world? Do you think that there were similar difficulties in the Hebrews' minds when they first received the commandment? Well, certain implications of the Sixth Commandment that we might debate today were not in debate in the days of the Exodus. For instance, the Hebrews knew that the Sixth Commandment did not prohibit capital punishment for certain crimes because God had prescribed capital punishment in the law. The Mosaic Law required capital punishment for murder, rape, adultery, and some other offenses. But the Sixth Commandment would have affected many of the practices that were common in some parts of the ancient world. Such as child sacrifice. Child sacrifice was practiced in many of the pagan religions of that time. The Sixth Commandment clearly prohibited the Hebrews from going anywhere near that practice, even though it was common in cultures that surrounded them. Yes, and the Sixth Commandment had dramatic implications for other practices of that time. Most of the nations of the time of the Exodus were ruled by a king or an emperor, pharaoh, or some kind of a similar monarch. And it was a common understanding in many of those nations that all of the property in the nation belonged to the king, and people only had control over the parts of the property for which the monarch had granted leases. Well, in many of those ancient nations, the king was not only the owner of all the property, but he was considered the owner of all the people. So the king could order the life or death of any of their subjects, regardless of whether the subject had done anything that merited life or death. And the same thing was true of slaves and slave owners. A slave could be executed at the owner's whim. Now, it might have been stupid to do that because the slave was producing economic benefit for the owner, but the legal systems of the time quite likely made it legal to do that. So when God issued the Sixth Commandment, God was drawing a clear line of demarcation between His people and the surrounding cultures. 
not just in the case of their religious practices, but also in the case of how they were to order their society. The Ten Commandments established an ethical framework for the Hebrews as they were entering the Promised Land that would make them clearly different from the cultures around them. One of the biggest ways the Hebrew culture was to be different was that the value was placed on individual life. That wasn't true just for the Hebrew people, but also for slaves who had no rights in other societies. For a variety of reasons, slavery was a common part of almost all ancient cultures and economic systems. Commonly, when one nation conquered another and they captured people, those people wound up as slaves in the conquering nation. But it was also true of that time that sometimes people would sell themselves or their children into slavery because a famine or other natural disaster had made it more likely that the people could either eat as slaves or they would starve on their own. And as you have noted, in most societies, slaves were considered just another form of property. But with the Ten Commandments, God began to establish the idea, the concept, that all people are people, and they have some basic rights. The Mosaic Law put limits on how the Hebrews were to treat their slaves, and that was a radical departure from the surrounding cultures where those kinds of restrictions and limitations were basically non-existent. For instance, Exodus chapter 21 verses 26 and 27 says, quote, An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or a female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth, unquote. Provisions like this make it clear that slaves were people who could not be mistreated in any way their owner might like. In most of the cultures outside of the Israel, killing a slave would not have been regarded as murder. Their legal codes would have had no provisions for addressing the mistreatment of slaves. And some cynics would say that the Sixth Commandment did not address that situation. You know, I know that some cynics would say that the Sixth Commandment did not address every conceivable situation where one human being might cause the death of another. But there were other portions of the Mosaic Covenant that did provide more nuance and did distinguish between what we would call first-degree murder, manslaughter, accidental deaths, deaths caused by animals, etc. I know cynics might say something like that, but the mere fact that the cynic would point out something like that points out man's essential sinfulness. God gave us a very plain commandment, don't murder another person. Well, when people start asking qualifying questions, well, what if an owner kills a slave? Is that murder? What if someone leaves a pit uncovered and someone falls in? Is the sacrifice of a child as part of a religious ritual? Is that okay? Human beings will pile the questions on and on. Well, the mere fact that we will pile those questions on reveals our sinful heart. We are asking those questions because we want to know the boundaries of the commandments. Well, why do we want to know that? If we simply accept the fact that God has issued a plain commandment and our intention is to obey that commandment, well, all those variations don't matter. I see the point you're making. The scope of potential violations doesn't matter to the person who intends to be obedient. The concept of murder is pretty clear. It's killing another human being who isn't doing us any harm and doesn't have any apparent intent at doing us harm. If another person is planning on hurting us, our family, or others, that's a different situation. But if our intent is simply to obey the commandment, 
We will not only not kill anyone else, we will go out of our way to avoid causing them harm because we don't want to run the risk of violating the commandment. It is our sinfulness that wants us to begin to develop some kind of exhaustive set of rules because we want to be able to argue that we aren't guilty even if we wind up doing what we shouldn't. Human beings, all human beings, are prone to performing a form of ethical calculus which essentially asks, how far can I go before I get into trouble? You know, the slave owner who understood the Sixth Commandment properly understood it as requiring him to value the slave's life as much as anyone else's. That slave owner who valued the Sixth Commandment wasn't concerned with defining limits which they had no intent to violate. And further, the owner understood that they had an affirmative obligation to protect that slave's life and health. Now, the concept of protecting a slave's life or health, that was just an unheard of concept at that time, and it certainly was a concept that wasn't shared outside of Israel. But if our intent is simply to obey the commandment, we will not only not kill anyone else, we will go out of our way to avoid causing them harm because we don't want to run the risk of violating the commandment. All of this points to the need for the Lord to include the sixth commandment within the ten and to make it the first of the behaviors that were specifically prohibited. In coming episodes, we are going to talk about the others. Don't commit adultery, and don't steal, lie, or covet. But by starting with don't murder, God, as he always does, puts first things first. The most egregious thing one human being can do to another is to physically injure someone. As bad as the other behaviors are, injuring or killing someone is worse. God started with the prohibition against murder to restrain the worst behavior first. And frankly, the fact that God made such a plain statement helps reinforce that these are in fact authentic commandments from a holy God who was ushering his people into a new period of their national existence. So God's commandments instruct us to steer away from the things that we know are wrong, but that we find ourselves drawn to by our sinful impulses. We know the Ten Commandments are from a holy God because the commandments help us restrain our sin rather than telling us to indulge in it. Sounds like a good time to go to our God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for Jesus, who is the one who understood our sin, but was still willing to sacrifice himself so we might be saved from the sin to the eternal glory of a merciful God. A Prayer of Adoration of the Son of God Blessed and holy God, we give you glory, honor, and praise for your goodness and grace. You are majestic in all your ways, and we come before you to honor you as the rightful Sovereign and Lord of our lives. Lord, we praise you for the gift of your Holy Son. By dying and rising, Jesus covered our sinfulness with his perfect righteousness and demonstrated to Satan and the demons that no plan cast against your might and power can ever succeed. Satan's ruin is the full manifestation of Jesus' dominion and that he is worthy to sit eternally at the right hand of the Father. Though the blighted eyes of sinful man cannot now behold the glory of the Father and Son, with authority and power you pull us to yourself and give us vision that no words can fully describe. 
Christ Jesus is God from God and light from light. He is worthy of worship, honor, and praise, and He stands astride the mighty rivers of creation, ordaining their course and sending them where He will. There is no body and nothing that can resist His will. He oversees the billows and swells of not just the earthly oceans, but also the greater motions of the heavenly places. He superintends all creation continuously, yet never grows tired or weary. His strength cannot be exhausted and He will never grow old. He will be Lord and Master of all that exists eternally, and His care and provision for us can never be shaken. What love is ours from the Father and Son? We kneel in praise, prayer, and gratitude for Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, Thank you for your support.